This is May It Please the Internet, a podcast brought to you by Revision Legal, lawyers who represent businesses that make money online. Hey everyone, this is John DiGiacomo and I am joined by Eric Mysterovich and this is May It Please the Internet, Revision Legal's podcast talking to you about all things internet law. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm pretty good. You know, I'm coming off of three really big deals that we're doing on behalf of a client. And I thought today it might be worth talking about work for hire agreements and assignment clauses and how you get stuff from one place to another when you're working with contractors and employees in the context of intellectual property law. How does that sound to you? I'm happy about it because I think this is, for people listening out there, the easiest, most inexpensive fix that gives the greatest amount of protection to your business, and it's not even a close call. Yeah, I agree. Let me set this one up. So just for purposes of like giving a concrete example, we are representing a client right now, and that client is buying a business for seven figures, eight figures actually, excuse me. And that business is content-based. So it's a pretty successful content-based business is about as much as I can say. <laughs> it's very loyally set up. But a lot of videos, a lot of written works, a lot of videos in progress and files that need to be transferred. And we, as the attorneys for the buyer, go into due diligence and we discover that it's just a mess. There's contractors and Estonia and Latvia, and there's, you know, somebody in Ukraine who works on the video production side, and there's people in the U.S. that haven't signed agreements. And I start to have a little bit of a panic attack because I'm, on the one hand, trying to get the deal done for the client, but on the other hand, I'm trying to make sure it's done correctly. And why do you think I had that reaction, Eric? <laughs> explain, uh, explain the fear that you and I have when we look at a deal like this. Yeah. I mean, every time I'm representing a buyer and waiting for that disclosure schedule to come back on that rep and warranty or working with the seller and having the conversation, I say, do you own all the intellectual property associated with this business? Oh yeah. Yeah. You own all the copyrights? Yep. Do you have any independent contractors? Yes. Do they provide content? Yes. Do you have any agreements? No. And then it's just a complete blows up because under U.S. copyright law, when the author of a work creates that work, the copyright rights vest automatically in the author. So if you have independent contractors out there that you hire and you pay them to write a review of a video game or a TV or speakers and you have an affiliate site, the article that person writes, they own. They own the copyright right to it. And when they own the copyright right to that article, if you are displaying it without their permission, you are committing copyright infringement. They have all the rights to that work. And everyone thinks, well, I paid them. I paid them. So I should own the rights. And I can understand why they would think that, but it's opposite. It's dead wrong. That person in Estonia owns the copyright to that article. Yeah. And the only time they don't is when it's a specifically commissioned work and there are very strict requirements for it. So yeah, the general rule is always they own it. 
And it's a big problem in a deal, like I just mentioned, because the client comes to you and they're like, okay, well, what do we do? And the first answer is, well, they have to, the, the seller has to go out and get agreements from all these people. And typically the seller is going to say, well, I don't really want to do that. They're going to ask me for more money because I'm going to sell the business. And, you know, they see an opportunity to extract more money because they know that I don't have all the rights. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. And then it becomes a question of, well, do we accept the risk that this person sues us later? Or do we try to push the seller further to go get these agreements? Or do we just accept that there's just this hidden problem out there that we're going to ignore until it becomes a problem? And it does. It really becomes a problem. We've had litigation where a buyer has bought a business and the seller did not have all of the rights and title to the intellectual property assets, the creative works. And our client got sued after they bought the business. And so then you have to turn around and you have to sue the seller and it becomes a whole show. And it's just not something that you want to get into. So Eric, what do you do? I mean, how do you solve this problem prior to making it a giant mess for us to solve for you? You have a contract in place with your contractor that has these magic words that the work being performed is a work for hire. Of course, we would write it and there'd be a lot of other terminology in there to protect you, but a work for hire agreement is changes that baseline rule. So instead of the rights vesting in the independent contractor, they vest with you, the employer, company, whatever you want to call yourself, as long as you've paid the contractor. Usually there's a trigger that the rights will pass on once the person has been paid in full, but that is it, right? It's it's a one-page agreement. It is not very complicated. It doesn't even require a lot of legal ease. It is a work-for-hire agreement that all copyright rights vest in the company or employer and not with the independent contractor, and it is problem-solved. And the problem is, especially when you're first starting out, no one thinks about this. Uh, we'll just get going, and then next thing you know, it's been a few years, business is becoming very successful. And now, yeah, you're in that position where like you're scared to ask these writers for an agreement because then they know something's wrong. Like it's like you're tipping them off that they could get something out of you. So it's this very easy problem to solve, but you got to solve it on day one, not year five. Yeah, and a well-drafted work-for-hire agreement is going to have really three things. It's going to have a work-for-hire clause. This goes with employees, too, because work-for-hire is an employment doctrine. So it's going to have work-made-for-hire clause. It'll have a savings assignment clause. So to the extent that the work can't be considered a work-made-for-hire, the work is assigned to the company. And then it's going to have a power of attorney clause, which says that if I can't find you, and I need you to sign something to make sure that you've assigned this, I can sign on your behalf. And that's really key because if you're selling your business at a later time and the person has, let's say, moved to another location, you've lost contact, you've got all those things. You've got that (laughs) bundle of rights and you can solve the problem even in the absence of the individual. And going back to the employee portion, the default answer is if an employee is working for you, then it is a work made for hire. But there's always a question of whether or not somebody is actually an employee or an independent contractor. And that too plays into, should that work be assigned? 
We litigated a case a bit ago where there was a big question. Was this person an employee or an independent contractor? Because if they were an independent contractor, then they own the rights. And it was a big deal. It was a trade secret case where not owning the rights, if our client had not owned the rights, they could have been facing a massive damages award. So we made the argument that they didn't use the employer's tools. They didn't work on fixed hours. They were paid on a fixed fee basis and not on an hourly basis. There was no benefits, et cetera. And ultimately we were successful in asserting that argument, but you don't want to do that. It's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. It's fact intensive. It's not an easy argument because usually those kind of employment relationships, if there's seven factors that we have to address to determine whether or not someone's a contractor or employee, it's going to be like four to three, right? It's never, it's rarely like six to one, seven, zero. It's going to be a close call because those factors are a little mushy and you don't want to be in that position. So content businesses work for hire agreement should have been the first thing you do after incorporating your entity is get that template in place and make sure everyone has it signed. If you're realizing this now and you have past work that falls into this danger zone where you didn't have a work for hire agreement in place and you need to clean that up. What I usually do is have them sign an assignment for all of the past works and then a work for hire agreement going forward. So if you find yourself in that spot, you probably have to double up on what you need signed to make sure you've covered all your bases. But these are easy fixes. And of course, like with anything, the earlier you do it, the better. But there's a lot of times when people are walking into due diligence or they've completed due diligence and they show me the APA and we're going through it. And I ask this question and it, you can feel the uneasiness during the call. Like, what are you saying? For some reason, this has just never picked up steam and it gets lost. And I think we could have this podcast once a month for the next five years and people I don't know if our circle of people would still understand it. It's just such an easy fix that goes overlooked. Yeah, they don't understand it. And it always is a problem in a business sale. It's always a problem. It, it has killed deals, big deals. Like we cannot stress enough how important this type of stuff is. And it's very basic. There are very few things that will kill an M&A deal in the e-commerce space and not having the IP rights is like point number one. The other is that there's not adequate title. Yeah, if you're dealing with a buyer who has any kind of investment committee or anything like that, and the buyer has to report back, well, the copyright rights to all of the content of the website we're buying is a little sketchy. The answer is no. I mean, that deal is not going forward. Yeah, and in a content site, there's nothing else, right? You have nothing else to sell. So right. as a seller, if you if you make the mistake of not getting this stuff tied up, then you really have nothing to sell at all. So we had a recent deal where half the software that was being sold was open source and the other half was not papered by an assignment agreement. And the seller's like, I've got this great piece of software I want to sell you guys. And our client was like, cool, we'll pay you seven figures for it. Perfect. Get into due diligence. We find out that half of it's covered by this MIT license that requires it to be distributed for free. And then the other half is... <laughs> developed by somebody that hasn't signed an assignment agreement. 
And I'm just like, you're not buying anything here. There's literally nothing here for you to buy. There's not a single asset that you're exchanging for this money. And it, it kills the deal every time. So yeah, again, very important to think about. Get it done. If you're sitting there listening to this and you're shaking your head, yeah, I should do this. Hey, Siri, set a reminder to call John at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Do that. <laughs> exactly. It really is important. And it's you have it in place. You can use it forever. Like the template that you can get from us, it's plug and play. You just put in the person's name and you'll be able to use that for quite a long time. It's a one-page agreement, maybe two. And it gives you ownership of what you are creating. Like that is the most important thing. And hopefully we're hammering it home. Yeah. And just to add one more thing, we talked about you can sign an assignment that assigns rights back, basically a backdated assignment. The name of that is called a nunk pro tunk assignment. And I just wanted to throw that out there because I paid 130 some thousand dollars for law school. So I wanted to use that word in the podcast. I like it. You got to. <laughs> All right. In there, you pretty much have to do it, don't you? Of course. Of course. I mean, how else would I elevate myself above the normal human being than using words like nug pro tug? I said, I brought up mens rea in a conversation. Classic. I don't even know what it was about, but I couldn't resist. I had the opportunity and I just had to go for it. That's perfect. I love it. I'm sure it was with your kids too, right? Well,. He didn't really have the mens rea to hit you in the head. (laughs) My son one time, he was explaining something and he gave me an and or in his explanation. He's like, we did this and or that. And I'm like, wow, and or already. Okay, (laughs) Oh, that's perfect. Well, that's all we have for this uh, episode. We appreciate you listening and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Again, this is the Revision Legal Podcast. May it please the internet.